Hey guys, this is Liam here. Uh, before we start the podcast, I just wanted to give a big trigger warning. Um, we talk about a lot of messed up stuff on this episode, so um, sexual abuse, uh, 9-11, uh, like incest, it really kind of, a lot of gross stuff's talked about. It's still a great episode, but if that is not your cup of tea, go on to the end. Tom tells a very nice story. It's very funny. And uh, yeah, uh, so enjoy the episode, and yeah. Trigger warning. Thanks, guys. We hear major stories about movies and games. There's come jokes and sometimes it's sad. It's already sad. You know what this feels like? This feels like we're sitting around a campfire right now. Crackle, crackle, hiss. S'more, beer. Oh, that's the crackle. My hair does kind of look like fire. Okay, to give everybody a picture of what's happening here. First of all, this is Media Majors. Second of all, it's a roommate episode. It the is. The three roommates Roomies. are here to tell stories and weave tales. Sitting on the floor. Sitting on the floor. Facing each other, as uh, facing a mic, uh, as though the mic wore a roaring bonfire. Uh, I see it as more he's the fourth member <laughs> of the... the <laughs> <laughs> we're the Midnight Academy. Yes. We're here to tell stories that aren't actually that scary, but six-year-old Liam is going to get super freaked out by yeah. them. And we're going to throw dust on the fire, and that's going to transition to the story for some reason. And this kid's a fucking wimp. And if it's your first time at Midnight Society, you have to fight. Did you guys not watch uh, Are no. You Afraid of the Dark? I did not watch Are You Afraid of the Dark. Was, oh, it, was it not a Canadian horror show? No, it was American. It was on the Nickelodeon. Was it like no. Goosebumps Alternative? It, it, it was Actually, like it was more Goosebumps. popular. Yeah, it was more yeah. popular. It was not edgier than Goosebumps. There's a, no, no, fuck you. There is a there is like a blood meat zombie that comes out of a fucking pool to eat kids. That's that's like... And his name is... is R.L. Stein. <laughs> do, you guys, do you guys think Goosebumps is Antifa? Boy. Comedy. All right. I guess we're just going to start with a story. I was sincerely asked. I feel like so often kids' authors are revealed to have like weird, strong, whack, like politics, like Roald Dahl and shit that I just kind of assume. Roald Dahl was a raging anti Semite. J.K. Rowling is a crazy centrist. (laughs) So it's less children's book and more British people. Uh, The problem. I can say that because I once made fish and chips at my house. That's fun. Uh, you're British. Your name is Liam. Yeah, that's Celtic, but yeah. And, well, and uh, my last name really? is Senior. Yes, my name's Liam Senior. I tell stories about television and movies. And my name's Tom Lockney, and I tell stories about video games and internet culture. My name's Jane, and I <laughs> I tell stories sometimes. I'm Jane. That's my name. <laughs> Don't wear it out. I haven't had the most consistent theme. My new one I'm forging up is, <laughs> as you'll see tonight, but I think fits with past ones are uh, interesting stories of people who have turned, like, negative or hurtful or unfortunate or, like, ugly things into positive or profitable things. They're not always good. They're not always bad. Cool. And speaking of themes, this week is big egos. And Liam, you're going to start us off by ending your three-parter. Yep. God, I'm a fat ego. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) You can start your story. God, my ego is just so out of shape. Oh, God. Ever since its wife left it. My ego's so itchy. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I this rash on my ego. Well, we're glad we caught it early because if it could spread to the to your self-confidence, who hey. knows what could happen. Toxic shock. This is why <laughs> Hey, this week sucked for the world. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm just going to say right now, my story's not going to make it any better because it's kind of loosely about... 
the situation that we're our end. Today is part three of my uh, continuing look into Eastern and Western media and how they bash their heads against each other in a story I'm going to call Where We Are Today. 1985, the Writers Guild, the guild for writers of television and motion pictures, goes on strike over the home video market, which was then small and basically consisted of uh, distribution via videotape. At that time, this was like the first time you could see a movie mm -hmm. after it was in theaters, and people were like, what the what? fuck? They what? were, people were like just throwing their groceries out their windows, babies were being thrown out with the bathwater. I don't need this bread. I don't, I don't need, need this, it anymore. I don't need this baby. I definitely no. don't need this gun. No. I just need VHS. All I have, I now have Smokey and the Bandit at home. <laughs> VHSs, as well as Betamax tapes and Laserdiscs for like $40 to $100 oh for a VHS. Imagine! That costs more than a triple A video game. Imagine if you were one of the idiots who bought like Star Wars Episode 2, uh, Empire Strikes Back on VHS. Oh, yeah! Shrek 3's on VHS! For $140. Oh, $140. You know what's weird? $140! Gotta have my green, man! <laughs> Do you know what's weird? Laser dick? <laughs> <laughs> no, that was oh, an accident. Oh. What about laser dick? I had decks? to get my laser dick on laser. It was just too dangerous. I had to get dick laser surgery, so now my dick finally doesn't need glasses or La contacts. Laser but dick. It's like a snake's yeah. Laser Dicks is my least favorite all-male sketch comedy group. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to point out that it's funny that Laser Dick... <laughs> <laughs> no, that was such an accident! Oh, no. <laughs> no! Oh, no. Oh, I'm really sorry. Now okay, you know okay. It, it's weird that Laser Disc... <laughs> disc... Okay. What... <laughs> you have, like... You have, like, an aphasia? Okay, no. We are still in the first paragraph. <laughs> Laser disc sounds like a like futuristic hijack technology, but it's so antiquated. I just think it has like a weirdly modern sounding name. Well, DVDs and Blu-rays use lasers too. It's just more specific what type of lasers it is. Look at that. So the reason the Writers Guild went on strike in '85 was that they weren't getting any money from home video, uh, as manufacturing costs for videotapes dropped dramatically and the home video market exploded. Writers came to feel that they had been shortchanged by the deal. Um, DVDs came out in 1996 and were easier to make and cheaper to buy. Yeah, and it's got V in it twice. Twice. And V. Vaginas! <laughs> and uh, they realized that they had to do something or they weren't going to make this money that they thought they rightly earned. Yeah. In 2004, the New York Times reported that companies made $4.8 in home video sales versus the $1.7 billion just at the box office. So writers were pretty pissed. Mm -hmm. yeah. So every three years, the Writers Guild negotiates a new contract with the Emotion, American Motion Picture Corporation that, you know, runs their whole deal. And it was 2007 was the, this big time where they were like, we need to get residuals on the table. Not only were DVDs being on the list, but new media was coming out. This was around 2007. The internet was just starting to become a really big streaming thing. Hulu had just been oh, on the yeah, introduced. Yeah. And... Um, on November 4th, 2007, writer Howard Gould addresses his fellow writers at a WGA meeting. This is 10 years ago. And listen to how fucking intelligent this dude was about the future. 
Soon when computers and your TV are connected, that's how we're all going to watch, okay? Those residuals are going to go from what they are towards zero if we don't make a stand now. So basically it was like, if we don't do this, we're fucked. Yeah, fight for- And he was right. They, right. Went on, yeah. they went on strike the next day. Literally yeah. this year, the WGA like almost went on strike because of residuals. It's the same, well, that's the thing, is it's the same argument since 85, yeah. is that the AMTP doesn't want to pay residuals. Is, that, is yeah. that, hey, we're, we're the labor and we want to be able to have our work pay- for us to eat and stay alive and live in a home. The other unions involved with the Academy Motion Pictures like have more money-making opportunities yeah. because like the Directors Guild you you get mm -hmm. you get those producers. I mean, that's ba producer is basically, "Oh, I make the money off the movie. That's my job. I make money <laughs> mm -hmm. for a living. Oh, I get paid to make money. When I get money, I get paid more money because I made that money." It's like trading on the stock market but with movies. Exactly. Cuz you put money into it. So from November 5th, 2007 to February 2008, the Writers Guild went on strike. No new television or movies were being written at that time, and a list of 300 high-priority film projects reportedly circulated around talent agencies to see if there were people that could scab on it, and it didn't really work. This is also how we get Transformers 2. Mm -hmm. Wait, you, wait, what? So Transformers 2 is... Is, is it is, a scab movie? Is sort of a scab movie mm -hmm. written by a guy named Michael Bay, Whoa, who wrote a lot what? of the script on the fly because he could not get anyone to write the script, which is why if you watch that movie, it is literally all over the place. Wow. Mm -hmm. Picket lines outside at places. SAG joined in. They got Teamsters to join in. It was like a real legit strike. Awesome. Uh, after four days of picketing, a large rally was held outside the Fox Studios in LA on Friday, November 9th. People such as Seth MacFarlane spoke, Jesse Jackson spoke, Norman Lear, who basically invented the modern television sitcom, spoke, and Zach Della Rocha and Tom Morello from Rage Against the Machine played songs for him. All right, yeah, you Which, know yeah, what? Hey. Sure. Have, fun at, have fun at your little union gathering. Yeah. So negotiators for the striking writers reached a tentative agreement on February 8th, 2008, and the board of both guilds unanimously approved the deal on February 10th, and uh, a vote was taken on February 12th, and by February 26th, the WGA announced that the contract had been ratified and the writers could go back to work. The guilds were on strike for 14 weeks and two days. It's 100 days. It had the most detrimental ramifications to television, to media, to the world, because something really, really really bad happened I'm... reality tv flourished no. reality tv during this yes. time oh, no you're gonna eat your words um, reality tv flourished ugh, i love eating my words they're so tasty <laughs> reality tv during this time flourishes and they lost a lot of money on scripted tv about uh the strike of the cost for la itself was about 1.5 billion yikes whoa yeah for 14 weeks wow and two shows that do really well during this time are The Amazing Race, mm -hmm. The Apprentice. Mm -hmm. The Apprentice, after recovering from a series of financial setbacks in the early 1990s, the well-known New York real estate developer, Donald Trump, changed his business strategy from borrowing to build and purchase assets to licensing his name to others. This is how we get The Apprentice, when a asshole named Mark Burnett approached Trump and thought, hey, Let's make something together. Trump is quoted at saying that he thought reality television was for the bottom feeders of society. 
And you know what they say about bottom feeders? The most, the ones that eat the most have the biggest bottom, and he looks like a sack of mashed potatoes, so. Oh, oh do you God. know another Trump quote? Um, you can grab them by the pussy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. There's you, a Trump quote for every situation. Yeah. They're like Hallmark cards. That Just a reminder. Pic- that picture of his butt in the white golf pants looks like oh. if you filled a, a, like, plastic bag with ranch and water and just shook it it puts the show on the air in 2004 and it's met with praises of eh, okay <laughs> it like does okay um and it starts to dwindle and then the writer strike happens and then Burnett gets an idea the celebrity apprentice celebrities oh do the apprentice for charity i forgot that there is a celebrity apprentice never watched so now trump is interacting with and yelling you're fired to the following people we've got tom green chloe kardashian brett michaels joan rivers walking shit's name piers morgan meatloaf sharon osborne jose canseco marley matlin sinbad daryl strawberry Geraldo rivera's creepy mustache cindy lopper arsenio hall john levitz fucking snooky gary Busey, stephen baldwin and a little guy named dennis rodman Dennis Rodman actually appeared on two different seasons of The Celebrity Apprentice. Turns out Rodman and Trump fucking get along great. So Trump runs for president. He leaves the show. Starts to do real damage to the country and to the world. And lately, I don't know if you guys have been paying attention to the news, but Trump has been basically calling out Kim Jong-un from North Korea. Now let's talk about Kim Jong-un. We talked about him and his dad on the first part of this story. Which is interesting because Trump thinks they're the same person. Right. What happens when Kim Jong-il is backed into a corner because his movies aren't good? What did he do, Tom? He kidnapped two people and forced them to make movies for him. For how long? Do you remember? For It was six years? It was eight years. Eight years. Fuck me. They made eight pictures in eight years. They had to gain his trust and lie about scouting locations in Vienna to find an American embassy. And that was his dad. Like... That's Kim Jong-un's upbringing. Yeah. So the Kims also love Dennis Rodman, one of their favorite basketball players. Dennis Rodman has gone to North Korea five times to hang out with Kim Jong-un. What I'm trying to say is that Dennis Rodman might actually be the only person stopping us from total global annihilation. Oh my Seriously. god. And Dennis, Imagine me in this situation. And, Den- well, and Dennis Rodman is also aware of this talking to a British news media outlet about the fact that he's friends with both Donald Trump and King Jong-un, and basically saying that if I can get them in a room together, I can get them to be friends. Listen, You know what? I believe it. Me too. Listen. Dennis Rodman, Dennis Rodman was so charming that he made that one white family less racist, apparently. Yeah. Like... Oh, God. Listen, it's hard when two of your bros don't get along. You just get them in the same room together, talk them down. It'll be fine. So basically... We're all going to die. <laughs> well, super all here's die. the thing. My story's going to end on this. Hey, Dennis. It's me, Liam Sr. Big fan. 96 Bulls, one of the greatest to ever play the game. Don't... Do, what, what are you doing? You can't make them be friends. Have you seen how Kim Jong-un runs his country? He's killing all of his people. Hey, get them in the- Have you seen how Donald Trump is running his country? He's killing all of his people. I have a pitch! He's trying- Dennis Rodman is trying to make a- a fucking Nazi superpower! So here's the thing, we don't want Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un to be friends, but Dennis Rodman, if you can get them in the same room together, you could kill them both at the not. same time. He is best friends with Kim Jong-un. He, I know, Jane, but Dennis, I'm you cl- have an opportunity. No, Dennis Rodman truly believes that Kim Jong-un is advancing North uh, Korean society farther to, than Americans. If Dennis Rodman fails to assassinate 
Trump, does that mean Trump's going to call him Dennis the Menace? Probably. <laughs> Fuck yeah. That's the sound of a high five. <laughs> that, that is a nickname that's in Trump's stable. Oh, good. Uh, wow, that was so upsetting. What I, what I realized... I some rocket man. I realized this about, like, a month ago, that Dennis Rodman is the key to the world not ending, and how super dangerous that is, because... Yeah. He has, because he has no idea what he's doing. But also because he likes both of the parties yeah. involved. And both are bad parties. So basically what I'm saying is hug your, lo- hug your loved ones tight, punch the Nazis that you can, and uh, live to fight every day. It's like if Seth Green and Austin Powers was like in charge of the world. Because he's torn between those two. Mm-hmm. That's a good pull. Yeah. Laser sharks. Okay. I'm, I'm, <laughs> laser I'm... sharks and we're back. Oh laser sharks, God. laser dicks. Yes, okay. Uh, okay, we're going to take a quick break to hear about another podcast on the Major Cast Network that you should listen to, unless it's Shmanime. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I'm Liam. And I'm Eric, and we host an anime podcast. Hold on, hold on. It's it's funny. I, I don't like anime. And I do like anime. And we watch it, and we review it, and I well, try Well, I review it, and then you derail everything. Yes. Uh, it's called the Shmanime Podcast. It's on the Major Cast Network every other Wednesday. Do we commit to that? When did that happen? Oh, fuck, it's Tuesday, isn't it? <laughs> every other Tuesday. <laughs> on the Major Cast Network, or iTunes, or wherever you get podcasts. Probably. Oh, no, was it Shmanime? I'm sorry. Listen to Big Time Whoopsies instead. Um... <laughs> It's bothering me. Wait, now that your hair's down and your glasses are off and your pain-covered overalls I'm a nerd. are off, you've been a nerd the whole time. I was she's yeah. all that in you. But like reverse. No. Oh, okay. A reverse she's all that in would be he's like not it. would be like <laughs> <laughs> he's not it, and it would be like wait, Freddie Prince Jr. put on this Star Trek costume and, <laughs> and wear, wear these moccasins. Oh my God, you were nerdy all along. Uh-huh. <laughs> so here's the deal, media majors, listeners. I believe they're called major heads. Major heads! Force majeures. That's what our fans are <laughs> called. Right. Ugh, those sound like Nazis. Um. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> Iron Eagles. No, fuck! Okay, hold on. I got this. So, your dear co-host Liam Senior and I have been uh, pretty close for the last couple of years. <laughs> and we, what? And we've watched a lot of movies. Yeah, pretty close. Some... What started as an innocent friendship <laughs> blossomed into a courtship. Yeah. A tale as old as time. Well, you ever see Beauty and the Beast with, like, LeFoe and the boyfriend he doesn't have? Ugh, weird. Okay. I'm LeFoe. <laughs> oh, no. About two years ago, Liam and I were in, like, a big documentary kick. This was around the time the Jinx came out when really, like, the whole murder mystery thing was really starting. And, uh... Eventually, we became so desperate for content after burning <laughs> through all these documentaries that we found ourselves watching a uh, documentary we'd never heard of on HBO called Just Melvin, Just Evil. Yep. Jane, tell me about that good, good content. So, this movie fucking shook us to our core. Oh, and no. I've seen a lot of bad movies. So, the official IMDb description for this film is an in-depth look at the director James Ronald Whitney's family history of incest spanning at least three generations and the devastating consequences that include drug abuse and alcoholism now i'll be honest don't know what the description was but it was not that liam and i had absolutely no idea that the movie was made by someone involved with the subject matter until about 35 minutes into the film Mm -hmm. uh my story tonight is about the creator behind that film oh yeah his name is james ronald whitney 
born, married, and divorced in Las Vegas. The big three. Ooh, nice. uh, James has led like a super active life. The BMD. You know, <laughs> born, married, divorced. Born, married, divorced. James has led a real active life. In addition to being a professional filmmaker, in his formative years, James was a competitive wrestler, martial artist, golfer, racquetball player, and gymnast, an instructor of judo and dance, and an avid skydiver who now has a high-performance plane, which he learned to pilot. Jane, you just described, like, a shonen anime. (laughs) Guys, you have no idea. Always the adventurer, James has raised three monkeys, and with only a toothbrush and an extra pair of boxers, has backpacked through more than a hundred countries. Yo! Yo, dude, you nasty. You have no idea. Oh, during Wh- during Whitney's... St- Fozzy, what are you doing here? Jaden, I just saw you perform like a couple weeks ago. I'm trying to smoke a cigarette. Oh, you are looking worse, <laughs> Fozzy. Terrible. What happened to you? Are you drinking, <sighs> drinking malt liquor out of a brown paper bag? Yeah, oh. but it's just piss. <laughs> Oh, you thought Hillary was going to win. It's Sweetums piss. <laughs> it really oh, did. Uh, he backpacked through the 100 countries with supposedly a toothbrush and a, one pair of boxers. During Winnie's travels, he became conversational. Notice it did not say proficient. In Indonesian, <laughs> German, Esperanto, and several other languages. He is now presently creating his own universal language, alphabet, and numerical system, which will be included in his upcoming autobiography. But he didn't think to pack, like, a second (laughs) pair of boxers? (laughs) Didn't need it, I guess. Now, as Liam and I learned way too late, but then also, like, way too frequently then in the documentary, Whitney's first career was as a professional dancer where he performed on hit shows like Fame and was both a Dance Fever and Star Search champion. For a number of years in the 80s, he was even a Chippendales dancer. That's a huge thing. That's so huge and important. At only 17, he was awarded a congressional appointment to the United States Coast Guard Academy, where as a cadet, he joined the cheerleading squad, gymnastics team, and soccer team. James was later granted a full economic scholarship to Arizona State University. Yo, yo, yo. I, I, I can't stress enough. I'm, like, not trying to make a joke here. Does this, was this dude, like, on stimulants or something? This is this is in, yeah, ridiculously he, he had a very cokey vibe. There's going to be sort of an answer at the end that I also think will explain Also, yeah, like, like, I have a bit of a review. Take all of this with a grain of salt. The, I'm, that's... And a line of cocaine. I was hoping you'd say that. So... I replaced all your cocaine with salt. So he gets a full scholarship to economic scholarship to ASU. Wow, dude, that's that's like going to McDonald's to eat a salad. Where he joined that cheerleading squad and became president of a fraternity. He also opened his own dance studio and competed on numerous game shows where, as an undefeated contestant, he earned tens of thousands of dollars while writing two treatments for game show ideas he came up with himself, one of which is the subject of his film series, Games People Play, which I'll explain a little bit more later. No, now! I demand you explain it now! At 21, Whitney uh, married the tightrope walker from Cirque du Soleil. Uh, They only had one. They it's met, a Highlander situation. They, yeah. it, She's dead now. They met while she was starring in Cats. And they, <laughs> and, and they, she died in Cats! 
and they eventually became dance partners. James and his former partner also opened several stores together, one of which was one of the largest stores in Hollywood called Oscar's Wild, where as the customers shopped, Whitney and his wife walked the tightrope over the patrons' heads and performed routines on a trapeze he mounted high in the air. Hey, Jane. Are straight people okay? Tom, eight we're, we're really not. <laughs> we're, we are really not okay. Have you seen the shit that we get up to in our spare time? <laughs> eight years later, they divorced. <laughs> so, that's But what's crazy at. was in the divorce court, they would take <laughs> walk over the proceedings. <laughs> Try to spit at each other. They installed a whole trapeze in the courtroom. Uh, so, <laughs> Your honor, this court is a circus. So this is still in like the late 80s. Now at this point, John decides to explore a new aspect of his creative side. Throughout the 90s and until 2005, he served as vice president at several Wall Street firms, including John Hancock and the Royal Bank of Canada. How does... <laughs> no, 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 no. I'm putting my foot yes. down. How in the fuck does this dude have the education and skill set and knowledge to, to be able to be hired and perform all of these fucking wildly different functions? Yes, you baby. Go devils! Here's the thing. As a financial expert, he has been featured in, to name a few, the New York Times, CNN, Fake news. Fake news. and other industry <laughs> oh, news programs, God. and has been featured on the cover of Wall Street Rags, such as Research Magazine, <laughs> uh, a bunch of other, a like... magazine about looking shit up. You know, honestly, there's a long list of, like, other bullshit, uh, financial magazines no one cares about and then he also received countless financial achievement awards during this time whitney also continued to be an accomplished musician he plays Fuck no he played no you can't just keep you can't just keep throwing spaghetti at the wall he plays saxophone percussion cello and piano he wrote and scored two musicals entitled Yesterday's Tear and Hoods. He wrote dozens oh, of songs Jesus. and scored two of his films, Just Melvin and TheWorkingGirl.com. He also wrote the theme song to his film, Telling Nicholas, and was co-composer of his um, and was co-composer for his last two movies, Games People Play in New York and Games People Play Hollywood. Can I just quickly say that during Just Melvin, sometimes when he's because uh, he he is the the. The, the director of that film. This guy, this guy, I feel like is is a diverse a enough human being that he could catch like fucking David Blaine off of his oh guard. Oh my gosh! Okay, he, so here's the thing. He plays the piano during Just Melvin while he narrates yes. at times, and it is unsettling. There are scenes of him dancing as a Chippendale. I'm about to get to a little bit more about Just Melvin. So. Premiering at Sundance Film Festival 2000, Just Melvin... Oh, Robert Redford, I'm glad to watch this piece of shit. Just Melvin was Whitney's directorial debut, and he went on to win the Best Documentary Award at, like, multiple film festivals across the country. I know exactly why. I know exactly why. He was why. nominated for the Independent Spirit Award in 2001. After playing theatrically in New York and L.A., HBO purchased the U.S. broadcast rights to Just Melvin, Just Evil... And the world television premiere of Whitney's first film aired following The Sopranos, broadcasting his first movie into the oh, living shit. rooms of nearly 10 million homes. Oh, my God. Just Melvin continues. Actually, I'm sorry. I wrote this a couple days ago and I checked today. Just Melvin is no longer on HBO. I thought it was. But it still airs in like indie theaters sometimes and it's very easy to find. It aired in Australia, Sweden, Israel, Canada, Holland, England. And is Haiti, Jamaica, Peru. <laughs> it is one of only 10 films honored by the British Film Institute to tour the UK. Just Melvin premiered internationally at London's National Theatre. And this film. Oh, we love a Just Melvin, Just Evil, we do. This film qualified James Whitney for both the Academy Award and the Emmy Award. Now, Liam, I'd like to take a quick interlude to explain 
what Just Melvin, Just Evil really is to the audience. Oh, yeah, sure. Because we haven't fully done that yet. Cool. So it's a documentary about James' grandfather, a man named Melvin, who basically sexually assaulted a million members of his family, and there's a lot of incest and abuse, and, um, you know, some of them have little challenges. Uh, I don't Physical, wanna... uh, yeah. uh, there, there's a couple of people with physical deformities because of it. Mm-hmm. It is, but here's the thing. It's the saddest movie there's some drugs. ever made. Here's the thing, but though. But intercut with, like, scenes of him dancing, and here's the thing. And scenes of him playing the piano and being like, yeah, that's me dancing. And, just and talking about himself. But here's the thing, then it cuts back to, like, the most fascinating, fucked up, real instance of like his mom and his aunts talking and telling very conflicting stories, but like super fucked up stories about what their dad did to them. And I believe it's revealed later that James himself was also assaulted. Yeah, it is. So, the but I will like Whoa. to get to the climax of the film. I but I just want to say that the the way this film presents its information is as if Tommy Wiseau directed it. Yes. That's the sticking point of this, is that you are watching people bare their souls and tell incredibly horrible stories, but the the music, With, like, the, the way candor. it's shot, the camera, the it is as if it's like a... Like, it's a circus. It's, it is fucking insanity. There is a scene towards the end where finally... Uh, James decides to confront Melvin, who at this point is now old. He's like fairly obese. He's in a wheelchair. He's just like a miserable old Mentally man. Mentally gone. And so he he brings him to this weird pier, and he has a bag of fast food, and he holds it just out of Melvin's reach and just interrogates on him. I'm like, why did you do this to our family? Like, admit that you did everything just to, like, give him the food. Uh, and it's pretty horrifying. The movie... Then takes a bit of a turn as Melvin dies, and the final scene is his funeral. And, uh, William, do you want to talk about the funeral a little? Well, funerals are rough on every family, as we know. But it's rough on this family especially, because they all have very conflicting opinions. Trauma can, you know, really change people's memories of incidents. It's, you know, it's a big family. Yeah, that that fucking awful horrible unspeakable level of like violence and abuse and and trauma can like it 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 will Mm -hmm. especially if i imagine it was like regular it was regular they were kids it's their dad like it's a real and then they kind of and then they have doing to each other and it's just there's no there's no such thing as a a clean break from something like that and uh, uh, I, I, you're so, leading me to something, and I just can't remember. Oh, this. sorry, you told it. Million years and a million. Basically, just that, like ago. one woman goes up and says that like Melvin was amazing, nothing ever happened, and one goes up and like curses him and like spits on his grave, and it's just like a weird, dark ending. Of, and the like, priest there is like, nobody told me what this funeral was about. Nobody gave the priest the heads up. It's like the ugliest funeral. So, how would you describe how we felt after finishing that movie? Yeah, like. In, disgusted, but and we were so baffled by, by this man everything. and we Chippendale danced in a movie about about his, his dad, his like, family sexual assault, exactly. A few moments ago, I mentioned that James also wrote the theme song to uh, the film follow up to Just Melvin, uh, a ten minute doc called Telling Nicholas. You see, immediately after Liam and I finished watching Just Melvin, we were so like, baffled and shocked and fascinated by this man who, like, sexy Chippendale danced during a movie about his family's trauma. It was so baffling. That's the thing, like, 
another thing that was so weird about it was it was half like expose on trauma and half fucking real in Vanity Project. Weird. It was it, so it bizarre. Is, it is. Uh, I. It is and literally like. And because some of it is compelling, and you can tell that he's trying to like help tell these stories and like grow their voices but there's just so it's like it's too late to really change it so it's just like you're just kind of watching it and then Mm -hmm. it's just mixed with stuff about him it's like listening to um the soundtrack to it's like listening to the soundtrack to schindler's list and the soundtrack to like the incredibles at the same time at full volume like your brain can't comprehend what's happening so we were so like just intrigued that we looked uh, James Whitney up on YouTube and we watched Telling Nicholas, the uh, tenement follow-up to just Melvin. Hey, Nicholas, here's, that bow tie does not work. Here's, here's another trigger warning. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. Here's the thing about Telling Nicholas. If I could go back in time, I would stop myself from watching this movie. Here's the deal with... Uh, I would honestly, like, I, I for days, was he, wrecked. Can oh, I, God. Yeah. Here's the deal with James's little sophomore flick. When the... <laughs> When the 9-11 attack occurred... No. Yeah, dude. James no. Whitney... Yeah, dude. No. Yeah, dude. Yep. No. When That's the, worse, bud. When uh. the, think about this. Uh, he won all the uh. awards for Just Melvin in 2001, so he's no. riding high off this. No, he can't have. When 9-11 occurred, James was living in Tribeca, a neighborhood in Manhattan, like, kind of close to the Twin Towers, and he filmed in horror as he watched dozens of people jump from the Twin Towers to their deaths and as both of the towers collapsed. After running from the debris cloud that forced Whitney from his home, he filmed the events that followed 9-11 for the next 10 days, focusing on one story in particular, the mother of a 7-year-old boy named Nicholas, who was in Tower 2 when it collapsed, and her family was certain that she was simply lost and would eventually find her way home. It took Nicholas's dad 10 days to tell his son that his mother was dead. I cannot emphasize this to you enough, listeners. This was the saddest video I've ever seen of any kind. It opens with James's, but it's also so weird. I, I need to give a little play-by-play here. I know. I What the bulk of the movie is, is <laughs> literally like found footage style slash like no, 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 prank no. show Not, secret style. Yes, it's, prank, it's prank show secret no. style. Where someone is like hiding in a no. bush filming. Yeah. It's like that silly. That it's he's like, like he's a cop on a stakeout. He's, he's no. like behind a tree oh, no. and he is filming this young boy, Nicholas, being told by his father on no, their front porch no, that his mother is gone no. and explaining death to his son and that his mother is, like, not coming back. That's so fucking And you can very clearly see that James is filming from behind something and the child does not know he's there. This movie was triggering, self-serving, unnecessary, and at my point, in my opinion, very insensitive. And in my opinion, fuck you, James. At That's this my point, fucking Nicholas opinion. Has, yeah. At this point, Nicholas has grown up into a young adult and like has definitely seen that film on the internet. Wow. Here's the thing. Here's how the movie opened. James's home footage of 9-11, real just like shaky footage from his apartment of 9-11 happening, followed by this flashy slide PowerPoint text Comic Sans. No. No. Fire Island Films presents. So here's the thing. Fire Island is a vacation destination spot in New York area that is very popular amongst gay men. And for some reason, James James has decided to name his production company after this. His whole film company. And I cannot emphasize what like low quality, flashy transition is. It looks like a middle school PowerPoint. And then it cuts to the most sad, raw, fucked up footage you've ever seen, 10 minutes long, and then it just ends. 
I, when doing research for the story, refused to rewatch Telly Nicholas. Fuck no, I'm never like, watching it again. Liam and I couldn't fall asleep. It was so horrifying. So, you know what happens after this film uh, gets released? I think via YouTube in 2001 or 2002? Well, that's impossible because YouTube wasn't around until 2006. Oh, well, however he releases it. Oh, well, that's actually kind of explains it. The Museum of Television and Radio held a special screening for the film that had already been featured on Oprah. No. And then the premiere of Telly Nicholas debuted following Six Feet Under on HBO. No, no it did again, not. Again, broadcasting it just to millions of Rooms of, of people. Rooms so full many. of people saw that film because they fucking had to watch it so they knew it would put on their fucking Te- network and they just did it. Telly Nicholas played theatrically in New York, San Francisco, L.A. It was part of the Academy Awards special presentation series. You can't just do that. Tom, Whitney again qualified for Academy Award consideration. And in 2003, he won the Emmy Award. Telly Nicholas won an Emmy. Fun fact, HBO no longer streams Telly Nicholas either, but it did. So, you uh, can't just do things. After that, Whitney's film career gets like a little sillier. He makes like a trilogy of feature films about game shows called Games People Play, and they have like New York, Vegas, and LA. But then it gets picked up by MTV to be like a one hour weekly series on VH1. Uh, yeah, they share yeah. a lot of programming. Be- it's and, really weird. And especially at that time. And so the first installment of that potential feature series has now been written, directed, executive produced, and hosted by Whitney. I don't think it's going to air at this point, but like, I think it's still technically stuck in like development. James is also completing production on another film slated to be finished this year. I don't think it's going to be. Titled TheWorkingGirl.com. Another trigger warning. A longitudinal study that began in 2000 about his friend Sharon, who's the mother of then four-year-old Jake. Struggling and single in order to make ends meet, Sharon decided to enter the cyber sex industry. Now, this film actually hasn't come out yet, so I can't, you know, like, tell you how it went. But, like, the description on the website and the marketing, I feel like I'm writing a photo. I just, I didn't get a good vibe from it. Mm. Over the past decade, despite everything I just said, James Whitney has received numerous humanitarian awards for his work with children as well as victims of rape and molestation, and has even worked directly with organizations such as Love Our Children USA, Save Our Children, and the world's largest child help USA. And that's what's weird, because theworkinggirl.com like, not only chronicles Whitney's journey through the world of cyber sex in an attempt to help his friend make her business venture a success, that's the thing, is he like tries to help her launch this thing, but he simultaneously addresses the issue of moms doing porn and includes counseling sessions with Sharon and a number of child psychologists. So that's like what he's working on right now. I kind of hope it doesn't get released. Now, I went to the Fire Island Films website. No, no. Because you had a bone to pick. And uh, it's the ugliest fucking website. (laughs) It has no image. It's like a broken Adobe Flash player symbol. Directly underneath it says, Fire Island Films is one of today's most exciting, innovative, and progressive independent film production companies. Uh, Lots of broken links and images, tiny weird neon text and comic sand in random spots. Like, it looks like it was made in 2003 by a middle schooler. Weird. Here's the thing. That's his aesthetic, yeah. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. No, no, no. This guy was a musician. He worked on Wall Street. He composed musicals. He danced. He did, he skydived. 
He did all these things, and he couldn't make a fucking website? Guys, I have a bit of a reveal. Wait, hold on. Uh, Squarespace.com is sponsoring the show. <laughs> Fair enough. Squarespace, do it. You give the money to so, everybody. Give money to us. The bulk of my story just now, uh, in terms of the information about James Ronald Whitney, mm-hmm. you know, detailing his, you know, the languages, the travel, the sports, the Wall Street, all of that came from his IMDb bio. Here's the thing. I checked and it's the exact same word-for-word word bio as on his personal website. Dude wrote his own extremely long IMDb, and the header says mini-bio. It's not mini. The listed author of the bio is Fire Island Films. Fun. For reference, I compared it to George Clooney's IMDb bio, and James's is 806 words longer. Oh my god. That's a way. Yo, fucking Investigative journalism. This man has a, ne- a net worth of $8 million, according to uh, www.celebritynetworth.wiki.com. <laughs> uh, Plug up. Give us money. He has attended the Oscars multiple times, won an Emmy, conned HBO into thinking he was a compelling, won all these festival awards, and basically has spent his life gallivanting around just like doing everything. He's my hero. He's my enemy. He is just James, just evil. Now, that's not the end of the story. I have one more thing. And again, don't get mad at me. Earlier today, I sent an email to James Ronald Whitney. Oh, my God, no. No, you did not. At WhitneyJRW at AOL.com. Oh, I have bad news for you. Which is the email listed on his website. So we'll see. An email he publicly lists. He also lists a phone number, which I will be trying if he does not respond to the email within 10 days. Fantastic. Oh, I also have IMDb Pro, so if I find out that he has like representation I need to go through, I'm willing to try. I have asked James in my email if he would be interested in coming on to Media Majors as either a guest with a story or for a more formal interview. If you two are not interested and he actually does respond, obviously you do not have to. Oh, I'm interested. I'm like super interested. I'm super interested. I'm leaving. Hope he doesn't listen to this episode. I mentioned that we are LA based and uh, I think this could be either enlightening or funny or a chance to totally call out a terrible filmmaker on your own show. Yeah. I'm not on media majors to make decisions. I'm here to stir shit up. (laughs) That's okay. the end of my story. James, that was fantastic. Fucking awesome. Also, everyone Google like a photo of James Ronald Winnie. He's so funny. <laughs> Chippendales, too. I sent the most formal email, linked to your website, described media majors, made a fake signature for myself at the end, being a producer for the cast network. That's why you were asking me about I that. I said producer and talent outreach Perfect. for the network. Oh, so that he, true. She did get the filmographer. Assignment. Well, I want him to feel like he's like important, like I'm like reaching out on behalf of you two to like get Yeah, he really can't listen to this episode. You really can't. <laughs> I don't know if I will. Yeah, you know what? I'm hoping come he responds on anyway. before. Yeah, come on anyway. It'll Let's be some discourse. Weird. I don't care. Yeah. We are going to ask for like proof of all that shit in his yep. bio. Yeah. I want to see fucking yeah. degrees. I want to hear him speak, speak in a language. Yeah, 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 yeah. But like so much of it is true because there's proof like the like tightroping and shit. You can like see him do that. That's so bizarre. All right, Jane, that was fucking That was a fucking amazing Fantastic. Star, Killed it. Knocked it out of the park. Thanks, guys. You're like now, the, you're like the the great George Fox. I'm going to Babe Ruth. Knock it back into the park. So, quick prelude to my story. I think that uh, both Liam and Jane's were kind of like very critical of the person who was maybe not great. Uh, my my story is less that. It's more just about like a guy who was known for like having a big ego, but not necessarily in a bad way. I've never like 
read any terrible things about him. I don't mm-hmm. know him. Chapter one. John Romero's about to make you a video game. Ooh, John Romero? Oh. A video game for me? Just for me? She blinded me with science. <laughs> Good rough. Thank you. Video games have always, since the dawn of the industry, looked to its creative visionaries as leaders and legends. Hideo! In Kojima. the 80s, it was Shigeru Miyamoto. You know, people were like... Papa Mario! Yeah. Feed me... Wait, I was going to say feed me bugs because I thought he was the Pokemon guy. Yeah, like, the, uh, feed me mushrooms. Feed me mushrooms, Shigeru. Feed me Princess Peach. Make me... Whoa. <laughs> Oh god! One day we'll do a media pages episode about Jane's obsession with video. I like to have sex with video game characters. Vormia Toad. No, we will not. Shigeru. So in the nineties, this uh, the, the kind of like popular celebrity of game development is uh, a man named by the name of John Romero. More accurately, uh, the celebrities were both Johns Romero and Carmack, but Romero's the focus of today's story. Mm-hmm. Who is he, you ask? He's got a regular look. Nobody asks. If you want to, if you want me to ask a question, I'll ask a fucking question, Tom. All right, Liam, ask me a question. Are trains becoming obsolete? Uh, no, because they look like dicks. <laughs> and you heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah. Trains are staying. They look like dicks and sometimes fingers. <laughs> so he's got very long hair, kind of like a scruffy goatee. And after a little under a decade in the games industry, Romero co-founds id Software in 1991. During his tenure, he is a noted contributor to such titles as Commander Keen, Wolfenstein 3D, and Doom. So, you know, need I say more? Doom epitomizes 90s game design. You you just said need I say more. I I thought that was it for the story. No, absolutely not. Doom epitomizes 90s game design, largely because most games thereafter emulated its gameplay, style, or both. Mm-hmm. All the, like, hyper-violence, all the, all the shooters, health, ammo systems, and the movement systems of the 90s in first-person gameplay, like, completely owed their existence to Check Wolfenstein splashes. and Doom and Check Splashes. And the concept of coins. Yes. <laughs> you look so serious. <laughs> I'm so sorry. You go. I'm having get, fun. Get I'm Canadian. a serious fucking woman, okay? <laughs> get it through your head. Read my shirt. Look at my man. head. I'm... <laughs> read my shirt. I love this all-female reboot of a serious man. <laughs> a serious woman. I'm Jewish and worried about death? Is that what that's about? I want tenure. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, in a lot of ways, John Romero is is one of the godfathers of the modern video game. Like, <laughs> he's gonna make you on this... The day of Mario's wedding. (laughs) Take the fire flower. Leave the cannoli. (laughs) Chapter two. Star (laughs) Fox. We all did one. Okay. You did two. Fucker. You did day of Mario. You are such a ball. You are such a bit hawk. Bit hawk two. Chapter two. John Romero's about to make you an apology. Oh, no. So John's riding high. What's he working on next? You know, surely one of the most influential men in the gaming space has a new project in the works. All right, Louise. Tinder for cats. Is that it? This is the, it's the late 90s now, and Romero is no longer a part of id Software. He's left. He's gone on to form his own studio, Iron Ion Storm. <laughs> Nerd. Their first Fucking ep- dork. <laughs> What do you like, science? Oh, uh, they'll call it chemistry game time. <laughs> Their first effort, 
Dominion, Storm Over Gift 3. Fucking nerd! That's just great. a string of words together. Oh, man, I miss when fucking video that game titles... Title. I miss when there were no fucking rules and video game titles were the equivalent of, like, running naked through a pizza hut. <laughs> and it was like, we can just, we can just <laughs> say and do whatever we want to. It's the 90s and nobody gives a fuck. God, it's called Mortal Kombat with a K. And it's really and every greasy. single C is a K now. I meant Boone, and I like blood. You got a thing that's plural, it's got a Z at the end of it now, motherfucker. Yeah. So, Dominion was not great. Not received very well. Uh, I'm sorry, okay. D- Dominion? I only know it by its full title, Dominion 3 Storms of the Nerds from the End of Time. Gifts also was in there? Dominion was not a John Romero-stamped game. Gotcha. In April of 1997, Romero and his team began development on Daikatana, a brand new first-person shooter from one of the genres. But it's called Dai Katana. Great. It is called Dai Katana. D-A-I, not D-I-E. But, but Katana is a sword. You can't... Oh, God. Sword guns? Is that what... What is this? Boz Lerman's Romeo and Juliet? It's actually... It's just like a shooter. There's, I don't think there's a Katana. Was this the U.S. government? <laughs> no. And this is how Dai Katana is marketed as John Romero's baby. I have an unhealthy relationship with killing brown people in games. <laughs> was that right. is, that, yeah. is that Baby New Year 2015? Oh. <laughs> it's Baby New Year 2017. Baby is woke. <laughs> no, it is not that baby. No. It was asleep. <laughs> there we find people. He himself. Oh, no, stop. Romero himself was insistent that the game was going to go off without a hitch, both externally and internally. Uh, but uh, you're getting, your, your story's being told on this podcast, my guy. So we know there's a hitch, like the movie. Will Smith. His initial goal set the game for a Christmas 1997 release, an absurdly optimistic deadline. Because he, like, he, he thinks that he can make an incredible shooter that's like groundbreaking and new in under a year. Despite Romero's confidence, criticisms began to emerge. Many took issue with his sexy, extravagant lifestyle consisting of offices on the top floor of a Dallas skyscraper and racing Ferraris. Who is he, Jay Leno? You seen this in the newest lately? Oh no. You seen this in the newest lately? I hate when Jay Leno comes on media. I hate when Jay Leno, I live in the newest closet. My eyes are dead. <laughs> rumors and gossip. So your Jay Little impression was so much better than that. Thank you. Was really good. But rumors and gossip couldn't come close to topping the official promotion for the video game. In 1997, a Daikatana ad made the rounds. Looking back on it, Romero had the following to say: "Quote, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> it didn't make sense. I mean, there's the whole culture of smack talk that goes with games, and especially the FPSs, and that was something I was known for." I didn't stop it, and I'm sorry for that. End quote. The ad in question features black lettering on a blood red background. The words read John Romero's about to make you his bitch. Suck oh. it down. Oh, I hate <laughs> So, all right. Fire Island Productions presents. <laughs> oh, God. It's a me, John Romero. Suck my dick, everyone. <laughs> From John Romero, quote, You know, I never wanted to make you my bitch. <laughs> not you, not them, not any of the other players, and most importantly, not any of my fans. Up until that ad, I felt I had a great relationship with the gamer and the game development community, and that ad changed everything. I regret it, and I apologize for it. Chapter 3. 
I think I... <laughs> I think I was drunk when I wrote this chapter name because it's John Romero's John Romero's about to make you watch and... There were a couple of those in mind, which is why I had to keep stopping. I was like, oh, I didn't write this well. <laughs> Guys, you gotta proofread your stories. <laughs> Daikatana misses its Christmas 1997 release window. Oh, no! Romero really has some egg on his face. Some eggnog on his face. <laughs> it becomes clear that Daikatana is running on inferior tech, the Quake engine, and needs to be refurbished on the newly released Quake 2 engine. Unfortunately, the Quake 2 engine was a lot more different from the Quake engine than initially anticipated, and months of dev time is lost. Oh, that scares me so much about game development. It's like sometimes... We're like, just halfway through, they'll introduce a completely new engine into the game? In, in fucking No Man's Sky, almost lost everything in a flood. They almost have to start oh from scratch. In a flood? In a like flood. a legitimate flood? Like a flood happened, oh, that's yeah. Awful. That's so fucking scary. Yeah, those people, oh, those poor people. Those poor people. Also, Johnny, to Puerto Rico. The game is eventually agreed. The game is eventually released in North America in May of 2000 to scathing reviews. It doesn't play well, it's ugly, and it runs like shit. <laughs> Yikes. Like me. <laughs> <laughs> it goes down in history as one of gaming's greatest Ew, it goes down on history? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, Derek Waters. <laughs> Romero retreats from the public eye, a little bit embarrassed about the whole thing, to work on mobile games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Crushing some candy. Romero, really. Angry and some birds. Uh, but rather. Oakling some suds. Sudoku. Uh, <laughs> I was unable to find any statement from the ad agency to, to like corroborate his story of his, his like involvement in the ad. So all we have to go off of is his word. But rather than end on an unimportant mystery, I'd rather go out on a fun reveal. Though Romero may not have overseen the artistic thrust of Daikatana's advertising, he had a much more active role in the way that Doom was to be represented during its development in the 90s. The box cover is iconic, the nameless Doom Marine, standing on some raised Martian soil as demons threaten to overwhelm him. The pose is one that has been endlessly parodied and passed down through gaming. And though it was known to be based off of a human model, their identity remains unknown until 2017. In a post on his blog, Romero revealed that, after becoming frustrated with the male model... You've got to be fucking kidding me, he Tom. He stepped up. One, stepped up. Two, shirt off. Ooh. Three, dick out. Ooh. I lied about that third one. His dick standing. <laughs> I got so excited. But it was excited. a fun thing to say. And three, he struck what would become the, iconic the signature pose. pose. Oh my god. Wow. That's my story about a man who had a big ego and had uh, an ad that was not good, and then very recently had another big ego thing That's come out so about crazy. Him. Now, yeah. voters. Isn't that fun? That's fun. Now, voters, which is also what I call listeners, tweet in to tell us which man from these stories you think had the biggest ego and which one had the smallest dick. Oh man, did... The do I, is it Rodman, Jung, and Trump for mine? Trump has the smallest dick, I Fuck, think. Fuck, marry, kill. No. no. Um, kill, kill, kill. Uh, kill, kill, kill. Uh, yeah, let's not kill Dennis Rodman. Let's just have him play more basketball. He's pretty Fine. good at it. I'll fuck Dennis And maybe make some more movies. Yeah. All right, sure. so at the end of every episode of the podcast, Medium Major, the podcast about Medium Media, 
Uh, we like sometimes we talk about like rough stuff on this show, and and also sometimes the energy in here is really weird because uh, the two people that you know were just in a car accident, and one of the other people has been up for twelve hours working all day. So we like to balance that out with like a good fun thing that happened in our lives, and we call this segment self care corner. We are running a bit long, so let's try to keep the self corners nice and succinct. I'll go first. I got the job, yay! Yeah. Fun times ahead. Payment and employment gains. All right. I didn't think of mine. I, I'm sorry, Liam. I, I hate you, and I'm not going to keep it brief and succinct because I've got like kind of a couple things. One is uh, oh, I'm volunteering at IndieCade, and it's some of the most fun I've ever had in my life. It's a lot of really, really just like kind, sweet people uh, like showcasing their games there, and it's been really fun to hang out with those people and help them uh, get their get their festival going. And also, my other self-care corner is that I'm very glad that my two friends are alive and safe after being in a car accident. We got T-boned, and it was bad. That was basically mine. Liam and I got into a kind of bad car accident a couple nights ago. We're both like, okay, we're just a little bruised, but the car was really bad, and it was very scary, but I'm very happy that he is alive and that I'm alive. Also, I got a haircut today, and I hadn't done that in a couple months, so like that was nice. Yeah, cool. Luda was watching over us. That's Follow it. us on Twitter, yeah. at MediaMajorsCast. Email us at MediaMajorsPodcast at gmail.com if you're one of those nasty people who wants to get their self-care corner read on the air. Follow me at, at Jane Cripe. Uh, current Halloween name is Jane Yikes. Um, yeah, you know all our normal plugs. Uh, I'm going to take a quick second. There's a new Filmographers episode over yes. the weekend. It was a little late because I got into a car accident, so that's okay with everybody. <laughs> Guys, listen to Filmographers. They're it's so really good. fucking this, good. This episode's probably the best one they've done. It's awesome. really funny. It's about Michael B. Jordan and mostly about how handsome he is, which is the truth. Ruth. Oh, yeah. And as always, we'll be there for you. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Major Casts Network. Stay fun, stay nasty, and stay major.